Hi, and welcome to Cameron's Baptist Church Sermons Podcast. We hope you're blessed by today's message. Well, I would say thank you for having me, but um, anybody who's done any conference preaching will know that the session after lunch, (laughs) it's called the graveyard shift. And speakers try and avoid it with a passion. Well, I'll see if I can keep you awake and hopefully alive for the next hour. We'll see what we can do. See what we can do. It, it, now, generally speaking, though, it is, it is great to be here. I'm just trying to think, Robson, where's he gone? Oh, oh there he is. Um, it's about 25, 30 years we've known each other. It must be. Oh. <laughs> I didn't have any grey hair till I met Robson. There's going to be some overlap this afternoon between myself and, and my brother, um, obviously. Um, A, because, you know, it's true. <laughs> and, you know, when I was going through, we, we couldn't actually, and that's a good thing from God, really, we couldn't actually meet up or, or chat very much before the conference. So we had a, a very quick conversation, didn't we, Michael, on the phone the other day before you shot off to Germany. And uh, by then, I'd sort of prepped my stuff anyway and, Michael had got a lot of stuff, as you saw, which is fantastic, um, which brought this morning. Um, but, you know, I think where there's a bit of overlap, I think that's good. Um, because it's rather like a prayer meeting, you know. We go into a prayer meeting, we, we might sometimes give it a few subjects to pray about, you know. And you're in the circle of where it is, and you're praying, and you've got something on your heart to pray. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah I'll pray about that. And then somebody beats you to it, and you go, darn it. You know. And he, well, what else is there to pray about? Well, no, 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 you've got it all wrong. You've got it all wrong. If it's on that person's heart to pray about, and you've got it on your heart to pray about, you keep praying about that one thing until you hear God's reply. That's the way to do it. So where we overlap, I trust God's in it, Michael. You know, As well as us fleshly men. And um, he's speaking. Um, already the time has changed a little bit because um, Robertson did say to me, well, you know, um, you can either preach or teach the last session tomorrow morning. And I thought, okay. But as I was sort of closing down on one of the sessions, um, I came across these verses, which I'm not going to tell you about now. You'll see in a minute. Um, I thought, I've just got to, I've just got to let loose on that tomorrow morning. So it's going to be a, a preach rather than a, a teach, if you know what I mean, tomorrow morning. But... When your spirit's moving and the heart's in it, oh, you know, let me lose someone. You know. <laughs> so that's for tomorrow morning. Well, this afternoon, it's the move of the whole spinet, spirit. Oh, spinach. <laughs> Even I'm not staying awake. Um, the, <laughs> which, with lots of power there. So uh, the move of the Holy Spirit in and through the church. Now, I was thinking about that, which is the best way to handle this. I could, could have spoken about the, the move of God in the church today, and I thought, well, that's going to be a very short session, frankly. Um, I can give you examples, but sadly, if I think of the church in this country, and I've been looking around long enough to uh, see many churches in this country and abroad come to that, um, 
But in this country, we are in poverty. Um, one of our ladies from my last church before I retired uh, felt called by God to go to uh, Nigeria on a short-term mission trip, which eventually turned into very much long-term. And She's been out there, I don't know, 15 years, something like that. Anyway, she came home on what's called furlough, which is when they rest, come back for a rest and, and what have you. But being a, um, a missionary, they had to stay for a while. Back she came. Now, frankly, she'd been a bit of a nuisance in the church, in my church. There used to be three of them, and they weren't young. I mean, oh, so young. I mean, they were ladies in their probably 30s by then, late 30s, mid-late 30s. But they used to sit on the side there and just chat amongst themselves through the service and laugh and giggle. And it used to get up my nose a bit, um, but I never said anything to them. Anyway, when she came back from Nigeria, she said, we were sitting and just debriefing, and she said to me, Pastor, before we go any further, she said, I need to apologise to you. I said, whatever for? She said, well, actually, you know, you know, we used to sit over, I said, yes, and you used to, used to I said, yes. She said, we were taking a mickey out of you. So I said, so I just smiled, I got pulled back. Um, I said, really? She said, yeah. She says, because um, she used to preach on stuff. And she said, when we heard what you said the church was about and what the Christian life was about, we used to say, no, this is he's bonkers. Because I'm a no compromise sort of guy. And basically they were saying, my standard was too high. You see? That reflects the church in this country right now. I mean, she's moved on powerfully because of the witness of the church in Nigeria, I have to say. And she's realized the total commitment and so on and the level of faith. It's just moved on tremendously. She's great now. Um, but yeah, this country is in dire trouble, believe me. Even our mainline churches are, are collapsing morally as well as spiritually right now. And it's, it's, it's devastating, devastating. We've already heard probably what's happened to the Methodist church with all the stuff they're bringing in now on same-sex marriage and up north where I am in Cumbria. Um, people are leaving the church in droves. Some just don't go anywhere. Others are moving to churches that are still preaching the gospel. And it's just destroying. It's destroying everything. Uh, and spiritually speaking as well, it, it's just the same. It, it's a terrible thing. So I thought, well, I'm, I'm not going to speak on the moving of the spirit today because... I don't see a lot of it. Well, I do, but in isolation, I don't see the church. So I thought, well, hang on a second. I want to get across to you in this session, really, um, that God has been moving down the centuries, and you'll see that in just a second. But also, as Michael has so helpfully pointed out this morning, I just want to re reiterate this afternoon, the Spirit of God is more than just the gifts. A lot more than just the gifts. Most of the time we pursue them for the wrong reason anyway, which I'll touch on uh, in the next session. So, as we begin this afternoon's session, the move of the Holy Spirit in and through the church, it might be helpful to consider that the work of Holy Spirit God is not just about powerful manifestations of the gifts of the Spirit. There is that. I've seen it, I've been a part of it, I've been used by God. But the work of the Holy Spirit is wider than that too. But let me just start by saying a number of bullet points to you, some which 
again, Michael has helpfully picked up this morning, and I'm, I'm just going to add to and affirm uh, this afternoon to start with. You see, the Spirit of God, who is God, um, one of my little pet hates is when we refer to Holy Spirit God as it. Have you ever referred to Jesus as it? Have you ever referred to the Heavenly Father as it? Do we refer to the Holy Spirit as it? It, it, it slips out. Because we think of Holy Spirit God as just a power. It. We, we need it to come on our church. You see what I'm saying? And we, we, we've, we've taken something of God and put that on one side. It's easier to manipulate and control an it than it is the person. See what we've done? We, we, we brought him down. So we have to be very, very careful about that. And it says something about the wrestle we will always have in our hearts and lives with our sinful natures. It'll always be there. Smile at the fact. Give it a good punch on the nose. Get up and carry on. It's the way it is. The Spirit of God was right at creation. In the beginning, Genesis 1, 1 and 2. God created the who? God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. That word hovering references in the original language, I'm not going to bore you with it, with the way, um, say, a hen would or any female bird like that will, will, will gather her eggs and then her brood under her for protection and nurturing. It's part of the nature and work of God to do that. He's a loving God. The Spirit of God. Similarly, at recreation, Paul writes in Romans 8 and verse 11, if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who has raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. Now that can make you go cross-eyed when, when you first read that. When he comes, he being Holy Spirit God, sorry, I've just dropped a verse. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead, Holy Spirit God, is living in you, he who has raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. This is the death, the life, the new creation, the born again that Jesus speaks about. He, it is God, Holy Spirit, who brings us from death to life. What else does he do? Well, he brings conviction of sin, doesn't he? John 16, 8. When he comes, he will prove the world to be wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. It's a spirit of God working in someone. You know, I love it when someone gets uh, very defensive or angry or mocking uh, when you're talking about Christian things. I love it. Love it, love it, love it. A lot of good argument anyway, but... The Spirit of God's at work. You see, he's not, when someone says, oh, I, I see what you're saying, I understand what you're saying, I, I need Jesus in my life. Hallelujah, that's the Spirit of God at work. 
But when someone starts to mock you over it and won't let go over it, and so on and so forth, it's still hallelujah. Because they're under conviction and they're fighting. So get on your knees some more. You see, that's his work. That's his work. It's wonderful. Revelation of our true standing before God. I'm going to say the same thing again. Same verse, but two different aspects. When he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. Conviction, yes, but also there's a revelation in that conviction. Oh dear, to put it politely and mildly. Look where I stand in all this. I used to say, and I still do, but when I had a church, I used to say, and I wasn't using poetic language, I actually meant it, literally. Anybody who claims they know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Saviour and hasn't wept at the cross doesn't, is not yet fully a follower of Jesus. What am I saying? Sin is that bad and it's that terrible. Who you and I are without Christ is so dark and black and terrible. You will plead with the King of kings and the Lord of lords out of his great love and mercy to come and forgive you a completely, utterly undeserving sinner. That's the only way. I'm not talking about mechanics. Some people find it easier to cry than others. Some, some, some cultures do. That's not what I'm saying. I'm talking about that conviction of a heart which destroys you. And that's when you know you've met with the Holy God. Quick aside. If Michael can do it, I can. Very quick one. I'll have to comp pack this story down. I've got a pacemaker. About, um, oh, I don't know, 10, 11 years ago now, something like that. I'm not going to stop and count. Um, <clears throat> feeling very queasy. I had a bit of a funny heart business. I was running at the time, marathons, and um, I was going out and some of my, my heartbeat was going up to like 200. <laughs> That's not right for anybody in medical profession. Um, so I had to walk back home, that sort of stuff. Anyway, I was very late one night. We'd had a big celebration service in the local uh, leisure centre with other churches. We used to do that sort of thing. Brilliant. Got home. Couldn't sleep that night. My heart was just pounding. So I said, yeah, let's go to the hospital. Ah, it's late at night. I don't want to bother them. No, no, no. He comes, come, jumped in the car. I drove <laughs> up to the hospital, walked in, uh, said, I'm not feeling too good. My heart's doing funny things. Took the quickly just took the pulse over the counter oh he said quick in the gurney so I was done on the gurney see tapes everywhere you know machines going checking it all out in comes the consultant says yeah yeah you've got something called atrial fibrillation which is a flutter she said um, you can get tablets for that I said oh good okay and uh, I'm lying there half up on the gurney and she said well I'll, I'll make out a prescription for you you can get to the doctors in the morning and get some and as she said that I said I'm going and she said what do you mean she said I'm, I'm, I'm going and it was like, um, you know, you turn binoculars around the wrong way, and everything goes, whoop. All of a sudden, everything just went, to a pinprick and just disappeared. Then I was in darkness, you see. Well, I came to with a crash team of seven over me. They got me going again. And uh, that was that. Uh, but after a few minutes, um, I said to them, I'm dying again. 
going again. But this time, though I was gone, I was conscious. Oh, well, just before I went, I said, Laura, surely this isn't going to be where I end it. I just can't. I mean, I love outdoor spaces, hence I'm in Cumbria with the mountains and the lakes right now. I said, Lord, this can't be it. Not here. This is not the way. I said, it's going to be a problem for the congregation. I want to drop dead in the pulpit, but hopefully not this afternoon. Um, And then I, I was gone, but I found myself standing. And there was this huge, it just went on up forever, like a gossamer thin, white curtain veil thing, lacy, very, very, very fine, right across here. And there was just an incredible intense light coming through, intense. And I knew I, that represented complete death. And I knew what was behind that light, behind that curtain, because it was coming through intensely. And it wasn't just light coming through. It's difficult to explain and, and put into words when you have visions like this. But coming through the curtain was not, not just light, but perfection. Goodness, holiness. I can't describe how perfectly pure everything was. It'd still come through this filter, through the curtain. And I knew that as I moved from death to life, I had to go through there and there was a mighty throne the other side. I've never been so scared in my life. Not scared of, oh dear, I'm on my way to hell. It wasn't that. It was just the greatness of who was the other side of that gossamer th- of veil. That's the thing. It is an awful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Why did Moses tell them not to touch the mountain or to go behind the Holy of Holies or they would die? He wasn't saying, if you do, I will punish you. If you go there, you can't take it. Moses says, I want to see your glory. He says, not in a million years, sunshine. You couldn't take it. I'll shove you in a cleft. I'll put a hand in front so that when I go by, you'll just see my back. That's as much as you can bear in picture language, in metaphor. No one comes to Christ and knows him without having wept at the cross. And I say with all love, friends, I don't care how long you've been walking with the Lord, if you don't know that conviction, ask him. You know, we take our sins too lightly. Legalism, you know. Oh, I've done this, 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 and this wrong today. Thank goodness I've got a God who forgives. Lord, I come to you and claim your forgiveness. He says, not in my lifetime you won't. Because there's no broken heart. There's no broken heart. You don't come to Christ through legalism, paying your dues of saying, I've done wrong. Yeah, I can see I've done wrong. That's not it. And a broken heart. That's it. I went off. There, Michael, see, we can both do it. <laughs> Some of these are overlaps from this morning. He brings to mind and teaches. The advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I have said to you. He's a teacher. His purpose is to bring glory. Jesus. 
Jesus says, he will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he makes known to you. Everything that we come under conviction from, guidance from, teaching from, through his Holy Spirit, is Jesus speaking to us. That's a wonderful thing. We're equipped to serve. Again, mentioned this morning, Acts 1 and verse 8. You will receive power when, you know that word, well, you probably, you may or may not know, the Greek word, the New Testament is written in Greek. The New Testament word for power is dunamis, where we get our word dynamite from. Explosive power. Not just to help you get by, it's explosive power. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria at the ends of the earth. You know, the trouble with us evangelicals is we're doers. We're doers. We hear a preacher on a Sunday say, and we come under that sort of conviction that we need to do something about it. We roll up our sleeves. Off we go to do. Now, you, you take Pentecost. Uh, sorry, you take um, Great Commission. You see, if you add Matthew 28 to Acts 1.8, the end of Matthew 28, the Great Commission, to Acts 1.8, you get the complete message. And I'll sum it up in two words only. Go, woe. Go, woe. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and so on and so forth. Whoa, he says in Acts 1. Not right now. Go back to Jerusalem and wait, brackets, in prayer, inferred, and you will receive the Holy Spirit, see? So you are commissioned and equipped in that order. Trouble with us is we think we know what it's all about. So when we get commissioned, when we get a sense of God wants me to do this, that, or the other, we run off to do it because we want to be obedient children of God. In whose power, in whose strength, may I ask? You know, we've got to get it right. We are equipped to serve. Uh, he's there to build up his church. Now, to each one, the manifestations of the Spirit, this is Paul speaking to the Corinthian church in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 12, isn't it? Now, to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. Now, he was addressing the church in Corinth. So it's the common good of those he's addressing. So we'll get on to the gospel side of it. But initially, the gifts are given, certainly not for my benefit. Any gifts I have are not for my benefit. Well, they build me up. They build the church up. They're for the common good. So I minister as we all should, to one another to build up God's people so we can go out and do what God wants us to do. Nor should we think that the move of the Holy Spirit in and through the church to be a 21st or even a 20th century event. So let me just stop, by the way, and just say I'm going to move on from the character and the nature and the, the breadth very briefly I've mentioned there, of the work of Holy Spirit God. I'm very happy to chit-chat, you know, and converse. That's the way it is. 
I love doing that. So if I've said something and it's, you've got, oh, I'm not quite understanding that, or does that mean X, Y, or Z, or what about this, that, or the other, um, don't grab me afterwards, only because it's only be you and me talking, unless it's private, in which case, very happy to talk with you. But I'm saying, just stick your hand up. I, I know it's something up at school, but then I can see, if you just call out, it's going to sort of throw people off. But if we just say, I, I've just got a, a comeback, can I just ask you something? That's absolutely fine and right and proper, all right? Now, that one cataract done in this eye, that one's still to do. I've got the old prescription of glasses. So I'm, I'm cross-eyed at the moment. Um, but I hope I can spot you if you put your hand up, all right? So if there's anybody out there, just, yeah, I'm sure there is. <laughs> um, no, please do. Please do. Just, just say, hey, you know, just a second. Yeah, that's fine. Absolutely fine. If you go to scratch your ear, I think you've got a question, so be careful. All right. So the church in this country is in trouble. It is. But what about the Spirit of God down the ages? I've just grabbed some examples, one example through the centuries. I don't think I've covered them all, but I've covered quite a few for you. And I'm just doing this just to show that Holy Spirit God and his work is a constant. Place of operation may move, but he's at work. All right? I mean, way back, I mean, apart from the, the, the first century, which we, we've got recorded in Acts anyway, so that's okay. Uh, you, you come to around about 175 A.D., to 195 AD. Leon, in France, southern Gaul, there was a, a guy called Irenaeus. Um, he was an evangelist, amongst many other things, um, successful in exorcisms, healings, gifts of the Spirit, evidence. There was even reports of people being raised from the dead. Wow. That's just... 100 years or so after Christ, well, 150 years after Christ. You come on to 213 to 270. This is sort of the a season when there was a guy called um, uh, uh, Gregory, and he went under the name of Gregory the Wonder Worker, who had many, many conversions and well-knowns. These are accounts from history. You come to a place called Armenia in 270. Antony, one of the power pioneers of the monastic community, led a vibrant spiritual movement and performed many, many miracles, healings, and exorcisms. Coming to 300s, 361 and onwards, Martin of Tours, bishop, missionary, Again, a pioneer of monasticism led a spiritual movement which brought multitudes to faith in Christ. The Spirit of God has been working down through the centuries. You come on to someone called St. Patrick. St. Patrick. From, from Ireland. Yes, of course. Powerfully moved. A powerful evangelist. Thousands were converted in his time through God being at work in him. The Spirit of God moves down the centuries. 
And then there was Columba of Scotland, the following century, 563. Travelled around, evangelised Scotland, saw many miracles, founded churches right the way through, right up into the Hebrides. Incredible. Gregory, the great bishop of Rome, Pope Gregory, well-known in church history circles. You don't need to well-know him, but he's well-known in church history circles. He found it necessary to write to Augustine of Canterbury. Oh, that's where he was. Encourage him not to be puffed up with pride because great miracles were taking place during the course of his missionary endeavours in Britain. I mean, the, the Pope had to write to him and say, careful, and it always is. Success is very, very dangerous. Very, very dangerous. We start to believe because we're successful. You see many great international preachers fall at this point and come out with all sorts of nonsense in the pulpit because everybody hangs off their every word and God is working through them. What a gracious God that you should still do that. Boniface, the apostle to the Germans in 716, preached with the gospel with power signs. 1200s, Francis of Assisi preaching the gospel with occasional signs and wonders and which produced repentance and great spiritual awakening. Just incredible. In Padua in 1231, Antony attracted 30,000 people. You consider the population of the world was a lot smaller than it is now in those days. And he pre so he's preaching had a, a mighty spiritual power, the way he spoke, that drew thousands to him. Thousands. Spirit of God was at work in his revivalistic preaching. Massive numbers of people repenting. 1398, almost into the 1400s. We get in there. John Huss, influenced by Wycliffe's writings, began a movement of reform, which became a predecessor, uh, sorry, a pre-runner of the Reformation. And there was great power at work. By his preaching, he attracted thousands with his revivalistic preaching. The Spirit of God is at work. There was something, let's jump to the 1700s, shall we? Let's get on with it. I think you're getting the message. Jonathan Edwards, Massachusetts, New England, yeah, America. He lived 1703 to about 1758, something like that. He wrote of the, the degenerate nature of his town, those are his words, of the dullness of religion. He says the young people were addicted to what he calls night walking, tavern drinking, lewd practices and frolics among the sexes. How nicely put. Frolics among the sexes for the greater part of the night. Then, two well-known people in the town died an untimely death in the spring of 1734. And it had a remarkable sobering effect on a lot of the other people in town. And they began to question the meaning of life. Life after death, eternity, and so on, spiritual matters. In tandem with this, a small but ineffective little church was praying for God to move, calling out to God for the souls of their neighbours. Jonathan Edwards 
began to preach the gospel deliberately and powerfully in a series of sermons entitled Justification by Faith Alone. I'm not going to unpack that for you tonight. In December 1734, six young people were converted. Hallelujah. One was a young woman who is quaintly described as one of the greatest company keepers in the whole town. She um, was a bit of a flirt, to put it mildly. Let's leave it at that, shall we? Let's say she was well known by the males of the town. She came to Christ. Her life was so radically changed that it became the talk of the town. Think of the Samaritan woman at the well that went back, you know? Couldn't believe it, could they? News of this evident act of God's grace spread like wildfire. In the next six months, 300 people out of a total population of 1,000 were converted. That's more than 25% of the population in six months. But you see, that's what we need. Draw, let's say, a three-mile radius around this church. How many people have you got? How many? How many of those know Jesus? There's not an evangelistic program on the planet that will make a difference. But the moving of the Spirit of God makes all the difference in the world. Do I want to be able to speak in tongues so I feel better about myself? No. Do I want to be able to lay hands on the sick so that I feel important and one or two of you get well? No, I don't, frankly. I honestly don't. I don't. If it's a sign of something more, you got my attention. Be built up to go out. The greatest work of God for this church and any church will never be done from this pulpit or inside these doors. This is the training centre, the equipping centre, the teaching centre. The greatest work will always be out there on the streets. Always, always. And it scares me witless every time I go out. We need the Spirit of God. That's the point. That's what makes a difference. Down the centuries to the church. I used to get so irritated when I, particularly when I was in London and there was a lot of con the conference season, September to Easter. <sighs> They'd find some church that began to grow wonderfully. And they say, will you come and be our conference speaker? And then everybody would come, two, three, four hundred, whatever it might be, some from overseas, you come overseas, oh, well, you've got more to say because you come from overseas. Don't understand the logic, but there you go. And there'd be thousands. Anyone sitting with notebooks? I'd say, what were you doing in the church? And I was doing this, and I was doing this, and I was doing that. Oh, okay, okay, got okay, we got the package. Come on, guys, back to our church. Let's make it work. It doesn't work. It just doesn't work. But all the Willow Creek stuff from America, God bless them and it works. People have tried to apply it here. It, like a damp squib, it just went nowhere. You can't repeat that like that. It's always the work of God. 
1860. A phenomenal revival. I'll go back one step, actually. In 1857 to 1861, an incredible thing happened in New York. On September the 23rd, 1856, a tall, middle-aged former businessman entered an old church building in the heart of Lower New York. For some three months, this man, Jeremiah Lampfire, was seeking, with the permission of church officials, to organise a businessmen's prayer lunch, at lunch, oh, not a prayer lunch, prayer meeting, in the lunch breaks of these businessmen. Just, just felt right to him and before God to try and reach out. Well, he went along, he put his signs up, little signs up, he went in, and the first time he sat there on his own and was praying, eventually just six people came in. Just six, that's all there was. However, second time they met for prayer, 20 men came through the door. The following Wednesday, 40 came through the door. Lamphire decided to make the meeting a daily event in a larger room. There's faith for you. Soon, the Fulton Street meeting had taken over the whole building for prayer at lunchtime with crowds of 3,000 every day at lunchtime. 3,000. If you said to the lampfire, what's your, what's your secret? He said, I haven't got one. I haven't got a clue. I've got no idea. Because it was a work of God. See, the Spirit of God has been moving down the centuries. That's the incredible thing. Out of that, and sort of throwing into that, just in Jamaica, in 1860, just as the sort of thing was dying out a little bit in New York, or settling back, let's put it like that, it wasn't dying out. There was a phenomenal revival in Jamaica in 1860. The movement quickly spread eastwards and spread along the coast to villages and hamlets, uh, eventually affecting the entire island. The prayer meetings generated supernatural force. I'm leaving off a quote there at the time, which carried the multitudes along on a wave of irresistible power, which in turn produced passionate repentance, astonishing moral reformation, and fervent longing to know and love and serve the Lord Jesus Christ. He's moving. The Baptist denomination, they had representatives on the island, missionaries, said they had 6,000 people baptised or restored to membership with another 6,000 applying for baptism and fellowship at the same time. That was just the Baptists. The Congregationists were growing. The London Missionary Society, um, and, and by 1867, considered the field sufficiently evangelised, and that day we drew their missionaries. We, then we're not needed anymore. United Presbyterian Church of Scotland announced their church membership grew by almost 25% by the close of 1860, and they had 1,928 candidates awaiting admission to membership. And one year later, there was another 1,703. I've never had a church where I've had a thousand people waiting for membership or baptism. What a glorious problem to have. Oh, come Lord Jesus. 
1904. Under the leadership of Evan Roberts, 26-year-old former uh, collier, miner, and minister in training. A revival, a move of God moved through Wales like they'd never had. Absolutely. You know the sad thing, people? That's only just outside our lifetime. Beginning of the 1900s, which was outside mine anyway. Um, you know what I'm saying? When I was growing up, there were people who'd been in the Bible who were still around. I can tell you about it. And now, it's a desert. There are some lovely churches here, by the way. But I'm talking across the whole nation of Wales. Similar thing happened in North Korea in 1907. North Korea, I think where that is now. You see, often though, God moves because he can see what's coming. Because he's strengthening the church persecution. That's what he's doing. So in North Korea, they had a massive, massive, massive revival there. Hebridean, oh, Hebridean revival. 1949 to 1953, 53, the year I was born. 1949 to 1953. Hebridean revival. In the islands. Yeah, what, what about them for? They're off the coast of Scotland. They're so far north. What the heck? No, God cares. God cares. Two old ladies. Why is it two old ladies? Why is it two old ladies? They've got more faith. Um, these I had some great prayer warriors in my last church, but that's another story. I mustn't do a Michael, so I'll just keep talking. <laughs> but they felt convicted and they prayed. Nothing happened. They prayed. Nothing happened. So what did they do? <laughs> they kept on praying. Gradually, things began to change. A guy called Duncan Campbell, who was a friend of Martin Lloyd-Jones. Those names may or may not mean anything to you. Martin Lloyd-Jones didn't die until 1981, I think it was. But he knew Duncan Campbell of old. And Duncan Campbell had been quite instrumental in this whole Hebridean thing. And Duncan Campbell said to Michael, um, to uh, Malcolm, Martin said it to Michael. <laughs> no, it's not that old. It was an invasion of God's presence and power that attended the ministry of Duncan Campbell. That's Duncan Campbell saying to Martin Lloyd-Jones, what was it all, Martin Lloyd-Jones says, what was it all about? He says, it was an invasion of God's presence and power that intended, uh, attended the ministry. Duncan Campbell saying, it wasn't me. I was doing the preaching, but believe me, it wasn't me. If I'd stood there and said, Mary had a little lamb, the, the same thing would have happened because it was God at work in power. That's the incredible thing. Duncan Campbell himself writes, he wrote about this an awful lot, the Spirit of the Lord was resting wonderfully on the different townships of the, of the region. His presence was in the homes of the people, on the meadows and moorlands, even in the public roads. People just coming to Christ. Staggering. I read one account where there were some fishermen, uh, I think about doing their lobster pots or something, and they were out late, and they were just in a rowboat. And they were rowing and out fishing stuff, and as they were rowing back, they, they felt an, an overwhelming urge to go to church. So they rowed like mad 
for the nearest bit of land, got out, walked up the cliff. There was a little little sort of mission hut, you know, one of these little mini little churches, the wee freeze, I think they used to call them, still do, up there. And they just felt, they just couldn't help, they just had to go in. They just had to find out what's going on. I, I just, I don't know where is this coming from. I just need to go through those doors. That's as far as they got. They opened the doors, walked in and fell flat on their faces under the power of the Spirit of God. They didn't even hear the sermon. Poor guy. <laughs> no one ever listens to mine, so why is that? But no, it, the power of God, that was in the 1940s. <coughs> That's incredible. Just a few decades ago. Now, I always example, I wanted to point out to you that the Spirit of God is alive and well. He's been at work constantly down the centuries since Jesus Christ rose from the dead. I mean, he was there before, don't get me wrong, but he was, he, he's now invading the lives of Christ's people. Spirit of God came on people in the Old Testament. Spirit of God comes in people. He visits in the Old Testament. He dwells within in the New. Why? Because Jesus said of his followers, you are a temple. And by definition, a temple is a temple when the Spirit of God moves in. Think of Solomon. Built the temple. All the artifacts, okay. All the gold inlay, okay. The altars in place, okay. The priests were there, they went through their, their motions, they prayed, and some great prayers in there around that. Okay. Then, like a cloud, the Spirit of God comes over, comes into the place, so powerfully and so thickly and so majestically, nobody could get in. The temple isn't small. The temple became a temple when who it was for moved in and dwelt there. Jesus said of you and me, if you know him, you are a temple. Spirit of God. You know? That's the wonderful thing. Revival. God moves powerfully down the centuries. And secondly, and I've been alluding to this all the way through anyway, revival and a powerful manifestation of God has always been to do with salvation. That's it. If you want to know the moving of God's power in your life, I say to you why. And I say that lovingly, but I say why. I want to, I, I want to feel, I want to, I, I want the gifts of the Spirit to be manifest in me. And I say, with all love, why? Why? It's only one reason. It should be. To, I just want to build up the church so that we together can then go and make Jesus known. That's the only reason. That's the only reason. You don't become any bigger a Christian because you can speak in tongues, believe me. Just read about the Corinthian church. They had the greatest manifestation of gifts, as we know, in the New Testament. And boy, were they a mess. 
they actually exhibited the biggest sinful mess of any church, even though they were manifesting the Spirit of God through his gifts. Go figure. You won't change who you are. Oh, I just, you know, I, I know I'm, I belong to Jesus, but you know, I've just had that assurance if I, if I could speak in tongues or lay hands on someone or, or whatever it was. Nah, you won't change you. It won't change you. It's not what it's for. God doesn't move for that reason. You know him by faith. And you know him, as was being said this morning, by relationship. Right? You see, how well do you know him? You know, how well do you know him? That is the important thing. The moving of God in such power is wholly of his choice. It's an act of grace. Whilst the salvation of men and women does not describe revival, it does lead to it. See, linguistically, if we just think about the word for a second, revival is about restoring something to full life that was almost dead. That's the church. That's the church. We need reviving. We're almost dead. Well, not globally, but we certainly are. I don't mean this particular church. I'm not having to go at you, but I'm talking about the national church now. On the other hand, people who do not know Christ don't need revival and can't respond to any attempt to revive them because they're dead. Trying to revive a dead person. Now, you see, what they need is resurrection. That's the whole point, you see. In the New Testament, Jesus gives the examples of raising dead to life. We've, we've got the, the woman of name, we've got Jairus, and we've got... Um, oh, I don't Hallelujah. It's the, it's, the, it's the graveyard shift, and it's affecting me as well. <laughs> We've got three examples. Before he goes to the cross, you've got those examples, you see. Jesus is saying, I'm, I'm not here to revive the Jewish nation to its religious ways. I mean, they needed, they needed some help, believe me. No, no, I'm here to do a greater work than that. I've come to resurrect the dead. That was you and me before we knew Jesus. It's a huge graveyard out there. However many tens of thousands of people make up the area. We're called to walk amongst the cemetery, gravestones as it were. And in the name of Jesus and by his power and by his might alone, say, come out. It's his work. If you walk physically through a cemetery right now and said, get up, you know you're onto a loser. So don't go out these doors to convert people. You're onto a loser. Don't bother. A lot of effort, a lot of money, a lot of agony for little return. Don't bother. It's a lousy business practice. Don't do it. What we need is God to do it through us. And that's in his way and his timing by his purposes. That's the thing, you see. This is the work of Holy Spirit God. And through his power, who raised Jesus Christ from the dead, we read. Well, that's enough for me. <laughs> Jesus Christ conquers sin and death. 
in one hit, the double whammy. And he who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will raise you from the dead. Well, have some of that. Lord, unless you are with me when I try to speak to anyone, I'm a lost cause. I'm a lost cause. That's the thing. Jesus does not use his words casually when he says that we must be born again in John uh, chapter 3, verses 3 to 7, if you want to look it up sometime. We need to be brought from death to life. That's, that's resurrection. Revival is for the church. We need revival. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones spent his whole life praying for revival. Didn't quite see it. His church grew massive. Massive, massive, massive. But he knew revival was bigger than that. This is the greatest work of the Holy Spirit God and he could, we could say that all his work is ultimately about achieving this resurrection goal. Everything is ultimately about achieving the resurrection goal. Building up his church, not so that we can say, look what a wonderful church we are, come and join us. That's not what it's about. It's about building up his church to be equipped. Matthew 28 and the Acts 1 business. It's the go and the woe and the wait and then the go. You know? That's it. Don't forget they had to spend a long time in prayer before Pentecost. Not even knowing what to expect and what was supposed to happen. They were walking in the dark in ways that you and I won't. Because we've got the scriptures. The important thing to note is that when the church is revived, God's work, God works through them, and the witness of a powerful God in their midst leads to the resurrection and salvation of those with no faith. We've got Alpha. We've got all sorts of tracks. We've, we, we've got the Bridge to Life track. We've got all sorts of stuff. I'm not saying we shouldn't use it. Don't get me wrong. But these are mechanics. These are mechanics. You can present the gospel strong, true, biblically correct in every way and people will sit and look at you as though you're speaking Martian. You see? Because it's God's work. And the truth of it is, I can speak truth Oh, there's my mouth. I can, I can speak truth, but you see, I've got a shop window. I sometimes say you've got two shop windows. One and two. These are the shop windows. And they display the truth of what's coming out of here. Now, this is it. If people don't see through these windows the truth of what is being said through this mouth. No. There seems a contradiction in terms in Scripture, which is not. Jesus says of himself, I am the light of the world. We can live with that one. But then, seemingly contradictory, he says a bit later on to his followers, you are the light of the world. Well, make up your mind, Jesus. I thought you were God. You'd know what you were talking about now. Is it you or is it us? Make up your mind. Because what they didn't realize was, following the cross and resurrection, the light of the world 
would come and live in me. Now, if I've got dirty windows, and what I mean by that is I've got to clean with specs. I don't mean that. I mean, if my life has grubbed up my eyes so that the truth isn't seen, the light of who? Jesus. Now, you can put on all the smiles in the world, world and all your best Sunday faces you like, or your best evangelistic charms when you're on the door, and say all the right things, but the light is not yours. The light is Jesus shining through you. So you've got to know him. And you've got to know Holy Spirit God. There's got to be a genuine relationship going on. And so real and so true. And you're walking with Jesus daily in such a way that the light shines and confirms the word. And I'll tell you something from personal experience. Sometimes you hardly need to say a thing. People will say to you, something different about you. What are you talking about? No, 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 it's something different about you. You see, they're halfway there. What is it that's different about you? The best form of evangelism is answering the questions people are asking. If people aren't asking you the right questions, you need to ask yourself, what am I doing wrong? Because when the light shines, people want to say, what is that light? They won't put it in those words to you, but they will. They will. The Spirit of God moves in such a way that many come to know Christ. It's his work. He convicts of sin, righteousness, and judgment, not me. I was in um, Berazonchi, funny enough, years ago with Pastor Roberto, another pastor who was translating. We were called back down through, and um, uh, he said, Pastor, it's the biggest church in Berazonchi. I think they had 10,000 people. Um, yeah, big. And he said, yeah, they've got a radio station and they've got a school. Guess can take a look. I said, yeah, sure. He says, I know Pastor George. He's a good friend of mine. Oh, great, okay. Went in and see it, chat, chat, chat. Had a look around, all that sort of stuff. And we're sitting in the pastor's office. And um, we decided to... He said, well, you want to stay for the evening service? He said, yeah, that'd be nice. Um, just see things on a different scale and everything. And you know, worship in a church that size. It'd be interesting to see. So we're sitting there. Uh, Pastor Paul, yeah. Uh, Pastor George says... Um, would you like to pray tonight? Bring a prayer. I don't know, I want you to close the service with a blessing. Yeah, that's all right, I'll do that. Chat, chat, chat. It'll give you half an hour. Half an hour? Now, you see, God had been moving in the ministry we were doing in Brazil. And I was asked, basically, to roll it out again. I, I've got nothing. I said, well, I'll pray. I've explained. Oh, I've been telling him what's been happening in the other churches. Oh. I said, well, it's not me, it's God. But anyway, a little bit later on, they did ask me to preach as well because the pastor from Rio couldn't make it, so I had to preach as well. And I've never written a sermon on the back of an envelope before, but I had to that night and preach to the best part of, well, I don't know how many thousand were there. <clears throat> and we come to a time of ministry. 
What do you, you can't lay hands on 10,000. What, what do you do? I said, Lord, it's down to you. It's down to you. What? Incredible things happened that night. I'm not going to go into details because it, it doesn't matter. It's not about me. But he did incredible things and I've got nowhere near anybody. I mean, that's how good God is. It's his work, his work, his work. He convicts. He convicts. In 40 years of ministry, having seen thousands come to know Jesus Christ, without false humility, I say, before God as my witness, I've never converted one person. Genuinely. Ever. I couldn't. Because that work is so powerful and so other. It's God's work. He can use me as an instrument if he chooses. But other than that, The important thing to note is that when the church is revived, God works through the church. And the witness of a powerful God in their midst leads to the resurrection, bracket, salvation of those who formerly had no faith in Christ. You want to see it in every church? I want to see it here. I want to see it in every church. I want to see the... There's no way this church should be big enough. No way. No way it should be big enough. Not for the work God has for you. Don't get on a guilt trip. I'm not saying that. I'm just telling you who and what is available. That's the point. Don't get on a guilt trip. Just get hungry. Hungry for more of Jesus. That's the thing. Hunger for Jesus. Gluttony is supposed to be a sin except for one condition. You are allowed to say more, Lord, more. <laughs> That's great, Lord, but I want more. Yeah. 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 That's what it's about. The overflow. The overflow. Michael mentioned living water this morning. And with, yeah. Michael, I've just got time to go off piste. Michael mentioned living water this morning. You see, the incredible thing about living water, it's the, the English way of describing what the Hebrew was getting at. Living water is always a body of moving water. Um, historically, baptisms didn't start with the new church in Jerusalem. And, you know, 3,000 people got baptized that day at Pentecost. That's not where baptism started. Uh, the mikvah, the Hebrew word. The baptism had been in for, for centuries. It was a purification for women at certain times of the month. They had to be purified um, through the mikvah, and all sorts of, if you were sick, all the lepers that Jesus said, you know, go and tell the priests. What's not said in there is they would have had to have gone through a mikvah as well, everywhere. But all that water, it always had to be moving water, because moving water was considered to be alive. And the metaphor, the picture that goes with that is the Spirit of God, the living, moving Spirit of God. Now, for water to be living, it has to have come from, when you stand at a riverbank, it's come from somewhere, it's passing through on its way to somewhere else. Now, when you're talking about the filling of the Holy Spirit, all you've got to do is say, over there. <laughs> yeah, 
It's God coming upon you, but not for your benefit. That he may work through you and continue his work. That is living water. Jesus said pretty much the same thing to the Samaritan woman at the well. I can give you water that will rise up and so on. We often see in the New Testament the word fullness to talk about the fullness of the Spirit. The word used there, and it's Greek in the New Testament, pleroma, the word used there means overflowing. It's taking a jug, say a, a two-pint jug, and having a gallon jug over here, and pouring the, the gallon jug into the two-pint jug, what happens? It overflows. Because the plenty is more than the container. That's what God does. He's not here to just fill you up to the brim to make you feel good or to ensure, uh, uh, give you assurance. That's not it. He moves through you. And what we need in all our churches is the moving through, as it were, the Spirit of God from heaven's throne, the rivers of life, Revelation, moving through to his work. It's always his work. But when the Spirit of God... We all need to be praying for the Holy Spirit to come for that reason. For that reason. Come Holy Spirit. That by being equipped by you, we can be fruitfully used by you. That's the mindset to have for the work of the Holy Spirit. I'm just going to finish with a some words I'm not really going to unpack because when I, was, when I was writing these down, I thought, oh, I'm going to preach on these tomorrow morning. Paul's letter to the Ephesians. He writes, Ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him. Not here, but here. I'm not asking if you know him here. I'm not going to ask you today or tomorrow whether you can give me the grounds of salvation. I want to know, can you, do you feel the life of salvation? That's the thing. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his people and his incomparably great power. You can't understand it. It's so big. It's scary. Oh, when we get to heaven, you know, we'll all be praising God and singing and dancing. You will not. Not for the first thousand years. You will not. You'll fall down before that throne in wonder and holy fear before the purity and the power and the majesty of him who is on the throne. So glorious is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That's who we meet up with. I pray the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order you may know the hope to which is called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. 
Is there a greater power than the battle that was fought at Calvary and the death of Christ and the raising of him? Tombs were opened. Earthquakes ripped the ground apart. Such power. That's the power, he says, I pray that the Ephesian church may know. And that's the power we should seek and actually belligerently accept nothing less. Don't make, take advantage or, or be happy, settle for second best or third best. Don't do it. Don't do it. That power, you have said that. Ephesians 1 going on, 16 to 21, this little bit here. He may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. Yeah. That's what you want. Friends, he's here. He knows you. He loves you. He cares for you. Today was not your pastor's idea. It was no leader's idea. The subject matter was not his idea. It's God's. He's speaking to you. That conversation may not be over today, but if it alerts you to that God is trying to, as it were, get a message through to you, then that work has rightly begun. That message may take a week or two, a month or two of prayer. I do not know. Maybe known by tomorrow night. I don't know. But God has now got your attention. And hopefully he's opening your eyes to the mightiness of what he's calling you to, the radical nature of what he's calling to, and under him the incredible possibility of what he's calling you to. This church building is not big enough for what God wants to do. That's the truth of it. That's the truth of it. You need to be asking, Lord, show us how. Show us when. Fill us and equip us. He is here. Used to be a song, he is here, he is here, he is moving among us. He is here, and he's here for you this afternoon. Now we're going to take a break for a few minutes. Uh, go to the loo or whatever, have a drink, and then we're due to meet again at uh, Pastor, is it? 3.30? No, I hope not, sorry? 3.45, let's make it a few minutes after that. All right, and um, we'll look at the gifts. We can look at the gifts in the in the second session, and we'll just see where that takes us. All right. Thanks for listening. We hope you're encouraged by today's message. If you want more information about Camrose Baptist Church, visit our website www.camrosebc.org.uk. Follow us on Instagram at Camrose Baptist Church, and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Camrose Baptist Church, Edgware.